So we consider, first of all, the chapter from the depths. One of the things that we deal with when we're having difficulties and people come to us and they want to comfort us and we appreciate that very much. I know we all do. We enjoy the cards. We enjoy the, the hugs and the words of comfort. But the ones that seem to mean the most to us is when they come from somebody who has been there before. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? That, um, you know, it's... One of the phrases we use sometimes is, uh, I know what you're going through, and I'm sorry to be so blunt, but you don't. And I don't know what you're going through, no matter what your situation is. Maybe you lost your spouse as well. I, I don't know what you're going through because I don't know your, your life. I don't know everything about you. I don't know what you've gone through up to that point, so I can't say that. So, but nonetheless, when somebody comes to you and says, I'm praying for you or I'd like to encourage you or whatever words they use, if you know that person has dealt with a similar situation, like, again, the loss of a spouse or the loss of a job or the loss of all your property or things like that, it just means a little bit more because you know the feeling. Again, it may not be, nobody, nobody has exactly the same situation, but you have almost a camaraderie with those individuals who have been there and done that. And that's why, certainly one of the reasons that God did what he did. If you look in Hebrews chapter 2, as we make the point that God understood this principle of have you felt what I'm feeling now or have you been where I've been, in order for us to have the perfect mediator, the perfect high priest, it was necessary for Jesus to be in the flesh so that he could say, yes, I know what you're going through. I understand the, the trials and the temptations that we face. What does the Bible say about Jesus? He faced them as well, right? Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Look at Hebrews 2 and verse 18. This is actually, let's go back a few verses and get the context of it. Down in verse uh, 14 beginning. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now verse 18. In that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Isn't it great to know that we go to our Father through Jesus, again, our high priest, our mediator, our advocate, all the different terms, our propitiation, all these things, that, terms that are used in regard to him. But we go to one who has faced Satan head on, just like we do. Now his particular challenges or temptations might not have been the same as the ones we face, but as first John two sixteen through seventeen says, there fifteen through seventeen, there are, you know, pretty much some basic areas where we're challenged. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We all deal with those things. Jesus dealt with those things. He dealt with those temptations and yet he overcame them. Jesus dealt with loss, did he not? He dealt with, with loss of loved ones. 
but he also dealt with loss of friends, didn't he? It's hard to imagine. I mean, we know what it likes, what it feels like to be lonely, right? It's hard to imagine not only your closest friends running away from you when you're in trouble, but then one of your very closest friends actually denying he, actually cursing and denying that he knew you. So you think about the loneliness of that, and then you think about Jesus being on the cross and looking out at the people before him and finding the hatred and the anger that was toward him for nothing that he did wrong. So we understand that when we look at words of comfort, they do mean a lot more to us when they come from someone who who has been there. And I think, again, that's part of the reason why we have Jesus uh, coming in the flesh. There's other reasons, of course, as well, but that certainly would be one of them. So when we look at these psalmists, what we're going to find is we're going to find, again, these men are writing by divine inspiration. One of the aspects of the miracle of inspiration, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, talks about holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. One of the aspects of the miracle of, of divine inspiration, verbal plenary inspiration, is that God allowed the individual writers to retain their own styles, their own personalities. And as we read the Psalms, what we're going to find is these are men, again, David's the primary writer of them, but there are others as well. These are men who actually were not just saying, here, listen to what I've got to say. These were men who were actually experiencing these things. So, for instance, go to Psalm number 6, verses 6 and 7. Psalm number 6, verses 6 and 7. Again, we're kind of still in introductory stuff. We'll get to Psalm 1 as time permits this evening. Look at Psalm 6, 6 through 7. See if this seems familiar in your life at all. He said, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is, be is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all my enemies. Basically, David is saying, I have cried my eyes out. That's the way we might use the term. I've bawled my eyes out. Okay. I have, you ever heard this happen? I have cried until there's nothing left. There are no more tears because I have basically dehydrated because I've cried so much, so much fluid has left my, my eyes. That's exactly what we're dealing with David here. And in fact, he even goes on when he talks about, in verse 7, my eyes consumed because of grief, it waxes old because of all my enemies. The, the picture there is not only was his crying draining him of physical strength, but it was clouding his vision. Again, because his eyes had been dried out from, from crying so much. Again, I'm not asking, we're not going to do a show of hands and I, as I ask these questions, but I, I have a feeling some of you have been there and done that, and it's painful. Let's look at Psalm number, whatever that is, because somebody put it in yellow and it made it hard to read. So that would be Psalm 69. Psalm 69 there, the, the picture is of one basically who is drowning. So let's look at Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. 
the psalmist begins by saying, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. Go on to verse 3. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Have you ever felt like everything was just caving in on you? That's the picture. You see the, the visual there in front of you of the man drowning. And sometimes our, our difficulties seem so great. And again, it can be any, any number of losses. But when we face a loss, our difficulties can seem to just mount up and pile up to the point that they're overwhelming us and taking us over. And we feel like we're, we're helpless and we've got our hand out and we're reaching for some help like we're drowning. That's exactly what the psalmist felt. Psalm 13 is another passage we want to take a look at. When we read the Psalms, many of the Psalms are, are Psalms of praise, and they begin that way. But some of the Psalms, like Psalm 13, we'll see in a minute, there are others, but we'll just for sake of time look at this one. Psalm 13 is one of the Psalms that, that begins with a complaint. So Psalm 13 and verse 1. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, How, or forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? So what, what is he asking God? And again, keep in mind, this is important. Keep in mind that he's writing this by divine inspiration. God is allowing him to express this. This is not somebody who is, is um, taking God's name in vain. This is somebody who is pouring his heart out to God something which we're permitted to do as well. Again, back we cited Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 earlier. We'll go back to that verse, to those verses, and see that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And the word boldly, the Greek word boldly translated, uh, can also mean openly. We can go openly to the throne of grace, which means that I can pour out my soul to God. I can pour out every thought of my heart to God. I don't need to keep anything in. And that's exactly what this psalmist is doing in Psalm 13. What's he asking him? Where'd you go? I looked for you when I had trouble, God, and I couldn't find you. Where'd you go? How long are you going to stay away from me? How long are you going to forget about me? Forever? How long before you turn back to me and let me talk to you? The question is, had God really deserted the writer? Well, no, he hadn't, but he felt like he had, right? Again, can, can you identify with that at all? Has there ever been a time in your life or times in your life where you felt like, I mean, you knew God was there intellectually, you knew that, but emotionally you wondered, where did you go, God? See, the point I'm wishing to establish with us here is the fact that these writers went through these things like we do. These are, are real, down-to-earth, get-to-the-point, help a child of God deal with the challenges that they're facing with comfort. Now, these psalms, like Psalm 13, they begin this way, with essentially a complaint. They all end up with praise. So they, writers, eventually came to the conclusion that God, such as in Psalm 13, God did not leave. 
Look at the end down in verse 6. He said, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. He realized that. But in a moment of despair, he expressed himself that he wondered if God had left. The question that sometimes come up in our, comes up in our minds when we face challenges and difficulties is why doesn't God help me? Why did God let this happen to me? Why doesn't God give me relief? Or what possible good can come from all of this? Now that's a question that I'm sure, again, most of us have asked from time to time. The question, why? We want to know why, you know, why did tornadoes rip through central Tennessee? And again, we, we could give a knowledgeable response. Well, because we live in a sinful world, we live in an imperfect world that's winding down. We could give all kinds of answers to it, but does that really satisfy the person who just lost a family member or who lost all their possessions? Because they want to know why. Why did this happen to me? And perhaps you've been in a situation where when something difficult had happened in your life, you felt like you were the only one who had ever had that happen to you. And you know that's not true. But again, sometimes our intellect gets separated from, from our emotions. And so our emotions say, God, why are you picking on me? Why are you letting these bad things happen to me? And we ask that question, why? The thing about it is, though, folks, we... We may never know why on the side of, this side of eternity. The simple one-word question of why is not necessarily a challenge to God. So when we ask God why, it's not like we're saying, you know, you don't love me, you don't care for me. It's just, to me, when somebody asks why, and I've asked this question, and I've been asked this question by those dealing with grief and sorrow, why? It's not necessarily a lack of faith to ask why. It could just simply be a reflection of our imperfection, our inability to, to know the mind of God. We're not God. Okay, duh. We figured that out a long time ago. Like the statement, there are two things I know. One, I know God exists, and number two, I know I'm not him. So we know these things to be true, but we still wonder why. But it's possible we may not ever know why. But our response to it is our faith. The tragedy is not knowing why, is not knowing the answer. The tragedy is not getting closer to God as a result of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read about Paul who had a difficulty in his life that he called a thorn in the flesh. And he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove that thorn in, thorn in the flesh from him. The Lord's response was no, each time. And then he concluded his response to Paul by saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So you think about that. When do people most of the time, eh, maybe I can't say most of the time, when does it seem like people are most likely to turn to God? 
in times of trial. I'm sure, again, not trying to minimize anything at all, but I'm sure there were a lot of folks in the Tennessee area, some probably angry with God, but some who might have been very close to some serious danger or damage or even loss of life, who might have said, it's time for me to start looking to God. So in our times of trial, we tend to turn to God, and that's what we need to keep in mind. Something that we see in, in, as we read these Psalms of Comfort is, yes, these men are suffering some difficulties, some challenges. We may not be suffering the same things that they are or that they did, but nonetheless, the truth is, it still hurts. There are different No, I'm not going to use the word levels. That's not a good word. There are different pains that afflict us when we face difficulties. So, for example, and, and one is no worse than the other. They all hurt. I, mean, I, I know what it's like to lose a spouse. I know what it's like to lose uh, a parent. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. And I can't begin to imagine how much that hurts. Nor you, if you haven't lost a spouse, can you imagine what that feels like? Or, again, some of the financial crisis that we had a few years back. Some people lost a lot, maybe even everything they had. So maybe we can't understand it. But the thing about sorrow and pain and challenges is they always hurt. And we don't want to minimize anybody's difficulty that they're dealing with in the challenges that they face. The good thing about it is that there is always a place to look, and that's up. God has not forgotten us. God has not left us. Hebrews 13 and verse 5, the promise is simple. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As long as my hand is in God's hand, and whatever challenges may come, I can overcome them. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, John said in 1 John 4 and verse 4. So as we look at these psalms and we consider individuals who were actually living these things, I mean, you think about David, we're going to see when we come to Psalm number 3, he talks about being encompassed by the enemy. And we know that as we go back and we read uh, the account of David's life. We know how he was constantly being attacked and Part of that was his own doing because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and all the family problems that he had. But sometimes the difficulties we face, yeah, we, we cause them sometimes. The uh, person goes out and, and drinks alcohol and then gets in the car and then runs off the road and is paralyzed for life. On the other hand, the person gets in the car, the person goes out drinking, gets in the car drunk, runs across the center line, runs into somebody else, maybe even a faithful Christian, and paralyzes him or her for life. What did that faithful Christian do to, to deserve that? Can't explain it. Not a thing. But this, the key component in all this, of course, is God. That God is our constant. God is our source, which leads into Psalm number one. So let's look in Psalm number one. 
By the way, can you, can you everybody hear me okay? Okay, thank you. I've lost a little volume in my voice, so I may need you guys to pump it up. If, but it says, they say I'm okay right now. So, all right, Psalm number one. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Let me give you an image there. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment for sinners, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. When back in 1988, I was in the Pacific Islands. I was in the, the uh, kingdom of Tonga. And for the first time in my life, I experienced an earthquake. Anybody ever been in, in an earthquake? I mean, standing right there when the ground is shaking, and you think it's going to open up right below you. At least that's what I thought anyway. And I was a genius handling that earthquake. I looked for something to hold on to. Everything that was you could grab to hold on to was connected to the earth, and the earth was shaking. I don't know what that was. It was probably about a 600 on the Richter scale. It was probably a 1, but it seemed like more than that, because I'd never experienced that before, and that was, that was unusual for that to happen. And the reason I bring that up is, is I actually use this illustration in, in the book, because that's kind of what it feels like when difficulties come in. It feels like you have no control. And again, if you're in the middle of that earthquake, and I, I think the earthquake was probably about a four, if I remember right. But when you're in the middle of that, and those things that you would typically grab onto are shaking too. They're not any help to you. Or maybe they're gone. Maybe that, that pole that you're going to grab onto or that tree you're going to grab onto, maybe it's just caved in and went down. And that's the way it is when difficulties come. It can be when difficulties come. Because things change and they're not there like they used to be. And maybe even people, people who we used to rely on, people who we used to, to count on to be able to do this and that for us, they're gone. And we feel helpless. Kind of like being in an earthquake. So the psalm opens with the word blessed or the word happy. And I'm going to maintain that this psalm, and again, each, I've titled each of these chapters. We've called this one the comfort of stability. Because our God is not an, an earthquake, even though all things around us might be in a state of flux, and they are. Our life changes constantly. Nonetheless, there's one constant, and that's God. Blessed or happy are you is the one who is the one who follows God. Now, we're talking about stability. Look at verse 3. We're going to talk about some of the verses here that bring out the aspects of stability that characterize God. In particular here, that characterize the individual who's following God. Excuse me, following God. So the third verse, 
paints the picture of stability for us. It describes a healthy and prosperous tree. The man who, again, we'll come back to verses 1 and 2 in just a little bit. But this one who is walking with God, it says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in the season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Notice this, and again, I'm not introducing anything new. I'm sure you've heard these things before, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded. That this particular tree was planted. You know, some trees, we know seedlings, pine seedlings go flying off, and they settle usually in your front yard somewhere, and you have to dig them up. But this is not a scattering of seed. This is a planter who particularly for a particular purpose planted a tree and he planted it by the river of the water. Why did he do that? Because he knew that the tree was going to need water in order to grow healthy and strong and so he planted it in the most advantageous place for that tree to enjoy good, strong growth. This is purposeful. This is an indication of the individual who is focused on doing what is right. It's purposely planted in a good place stability. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. This is, again, demonstrating stability, though from a negative standpoint at this point. I've got two pictures up there. You can see that one there. The idea of the chaff being driven away by the wind. There's another picture of it. Different ways that people do it in society still today. Separating the grain from the chaff or from the hull. And in this particular case, the way they probably did it in that first century was by taking it similar to what they're doing here and, and tossing the grain up into the air. The, the hull being lighter weight or the chaff being lighter weight would blow away in the wind and the heavier grain would fall down and thus they were able to separate. They were, we use the term winnow. They were winnowing their grain. So while verse 3 presented stability in a positive way from one who plants in a particular place for a particular purpose, a good strong place for that tree to grow, here it's kind of taking the other picture of it. The stability here is expressed in the grain that is coming down as opposed to the chaff that is so light that it blows away. Again, stability in the sixth verse. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So we've got three things that represent stability for us so far in this song. Number one, the purposeful planting of the tree so its roots grow strong and healthy. Number two, the grain that is stable and falls where it's supposed to fall. And now number three, and this to me is, is, stands out even above the other two, the phrase, the Lord knows the way. The Lord knows the way. There's one thing about when difficulties come into our lives. And that is that we're traveling a new and unknown path. No two situations, even in our own lives, are exactly alike, are they? It's a new plan for us. It's a new path for us. But the Bible says in Psalm 1 and verse 6 that God knows the way of the righteous. It's not predestination. That is simply God's divinity, God's nature. 
of being aware of the path that we have ahead of us. And the thing about it, if I'm here one day and life is bright and happy and, and cheerful and sunshine, God is here, is he not? But if I'm here the next day and all of a sudden a major tragedy has occurred in my life, where did God go? Did he stay back there? He was already here. I came into his place. We're going to talk about in a couple of weeks in uh, the men's day, we're going to talk about being uncomfortable. And Mike's asked me to speak for a few minutes on Friday night. And I'm going to talk about comfort zones. And we think about comfort zones. As I think about comfort zone, we think about, okay, I'm comfortable here doing this. But if you ask me to step out and do that, I'm not going to be comfortable. So I really don't want to do that. But here's my point. Right here, doing the things that I feel confident in, I'm in my comfort zone. But the reason I'm, one of the reasons I'm in, in my comfort zone, or the primary reason I'm in my comfort zone here, is because God is here with me. So if I venture out and try to be better than I was, and I get out of that comfort zone, guess what? All I did was step into another comfort zone because God's already there. So really, with the God of all comfort being with us, the God of stability being with us, there's no place that I can go. It's like the psalmist said in Psalm 139, where should I flee from your presence? You're everywhere. Isn't that great to know? I cannot outrun God. I can, now, why would I want to? Now, if I'm doing something wrong, then yeah, I, I don't want God to see, but if I'm following God faithfully, I'm happy that he is seeing everything and he's with me wherever I am. So these are references to stability. God is the constant, the uncertainty. No matter what tragedies may come upon us, no matter how things may change, and sometimes they change very fast. Again, we've got the prime example of the tornado, but we've all got examples in our lives. Things that just happen. And, and sometimes, even if we know they're going to happen, even if we know a difficulty or a challenge or a tragedy is, is coming, it doesn't lighten it any, does it? It's still just as hard as if it had been sudden. It still hurts. So, we'll run out of time here in just a few minutes. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 now. Let's talk about finding that stability in our lives. God is stability. We know that. We're going to come back. We won't have time this week. Next week we'll pick up there and, and talk about God being stability. We're going to show throughout the scriptures how God demonstrates this stability. God is our rock. God is our fortress. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 3. God is our strength. God is our tower. God is our sun and shield, Psalm 103 says. How do we take advantage of that stability? Well, you know, I guess another way to, to ask that question is, is it just automatically come to us? Do we automatically feel, okay, God is stable, I am too. I'm strong because God is strong. No, there are some things we need to do. And that's what we see in Psalm 1 and verse 2. Psalm 1 and verse 2 talks about the delight being in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. The stability of God is found in two ways the positive and the negative. And verse 1 is the negative. 
here's some things you don't do. You want to find stability in God? Here's some things that you don't do. You don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You don't stand in the way of sinners. You don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Notice the, the progression or maybe digression of those three steps. You've got walking, standing, and sitting. So if we want to enjoy the stability of godliness, then one thing we have to do is we have to put off the things of the world. Walking, standing, and sitting. Each one of those indicates a degree of familiarity with sin. The terms that he's using here, the ungodly, the sinners, the scornful. Each one represents a familiarity. I use this illustration, and I'll tell you something funny about it in just a second. But I've used this illustration in regard to this verse. That if I'm walking down the street, back in the old days, some of you might remember this. Remember when people used to sit out on their porches and you'd walk down the sidewalk and you'd wave at them? Okay. So picture in your mind for a minute that we're walking past the porch of, of sin. And we just walk past it and we acknowledge its presence. But we don't interact with it. Then we're walking past the porch of sin the next day. And we walk by. And we stop and stand and look at it. What's happening? It's becoming interesting to us, right? So we go the next day. Not only do we walk by... Not only do we stand, but we get up there on the porch with sin itself and we begin to participate in it. See, those are the three levels of familiarity that he's dealing with in verse 1. And if we want stability, godly stability, then not only do we not sit down with it, not only do we not stand with it, we just walk past it because that's what he's talking about here in this verse, in verse 1, that we don't get anywhere near it. And that says I have to stop, even though the clock says I have two minutes. Which do you believe, Brother Gene? You believe the clock or the bell? So we take our pick. But let me get let me get one more verse in really quickly. This is in First Peter, First Peter three. Real quick. You can choose a different route. That would be great. Unfortunately, that porch is always there, isn't it? Yeah, we can turn away from it and not look at it. This is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil let his, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Verse 11, the word eschew means to run away from or turn away from. Let him run away from evil. And then the next part of the verse, it says, King James says, ensue peace, let him seek peace and ensue it. That means run toward it. So we've got a choice. The stability is there. But we have to seek God. Everybody get that? We have to seek God. If you want stability in times of crisis and trouble in your life, listen, it doesn't come overnight. It doesn't come overnight. It comes through building your faith in God. How can somebody stand up in the midst of tornadoes? How can somebody stand up in the midst of a a cancer diagnosis? How can somebody stand up in the loss of a spouse or the loss of a parent or the loss of a child? How can somebody stand up in the loss of financial uh, prosperity? They have been building that faith up 
They have been strengthening themselves through the study of the word, Romans 10, 17. They have been building up the strength from God through his word. And we're going to pick up on that next week. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the time we had to study together this evening. We're thankful, Father, that we can go to your word and we can, we can gain the comfort and strength that we need. Father, we know that Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we believe that. And we believe that you are greater than Satan. We know you are. We're so thankful for this. We're so thankful that we can overcome him. We're so thankful that with the trials and challenges we face on a daily basis, that we can turn to you and find the comfort and strength that we need. Thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope and blessings we have in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.